Father, I thank you for how you've ordered this service and through the songs that we have sung, Lord, and the scriptures that we have read, Lord, you have focused our attention upon you and who you are and what you have done. We thank you, Father, for sending your Son, God the Son himself, to become a man so that he could suffer in our place on the cross, that he could endure hell, the wrath of God on the cross in our place, and die on our behalf and then rise from the dead so that if we would turn from our sins and put our trust in him alone to be our savior and our master and and the only one who can satisfy us, that you would save us through what he had done. Lord, we thank you for our savior. We thank you that he is our Lord and our master. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who has not yet bowed the knee to him, Lord, may you work through your word to do that because in him we have forgiveness, in him we have life, in him we have joy, in him we have everlasting peace, because he himself is those things, he is the source of those things. If we have him, we have life itself. So help us to see him as our life, help us to love him more and more, we pray, and may you do that in our hearts through your word this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 9. And this is a a longer psalm, about 20 verses, well, exactly 20 verses. So I won't read the whole psalm, but we will read through it as we work our way through it in this message. But this is another psalm that confirms for us that David's life was a life full of trials. When you begin reading the book of the psalms, it doesn't take you very long before you come to the conclusion that Wow, David had a lot of problems. And if we think about it, I don't think many of us would want to take a walk in his sandals because of the difficulty uh, that that his life was for him. But as believers, we can identify with David because we find our lives also to be full of trials, even as believers in Jesus Christ, actually especially as believers in Jesus Christ. And we can thank God that David wrote about his experiences and about how God sustained him in the midst of trial because he gives us a road map of how to endure our own trials and how to do so with joy and gratitude rather than despair. And ultimately, David's sufferings that we read about point ahead to the sufferings of his greatest descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ who has suffered to accomplish our redemption. And if we seek to read the Psalms and we seek to use the strategies that David used to get through the trials that God brings, we will find ourselves walking down the straight and narrow path of following Jesus. Because Jesus perfectly lived out the sufferings that we read about in these Psalms. David strove to live in a way that honored God, but we know that he stumbled. But Jesus, as God incarnate, perfectly honored God in every single trial. And we see the echoes and the foreshadowings of his righteous life in these psalms. And these psalms teach us how to suffer well as Jesus suffered well to accomplish our redemption. That's why we're commanded in Hebrews 12, verses 2 to 3, to be ever fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author of and perfecter of faith, 
who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Reading the Psalms and following the roadmaps of how to endure the suffering that comes at the hands of those who unjustly come after us is crucial to our ability to get through those things. And in in this psalm, Psalm 9, we're going to see two main roads that we need to travel on to get through this kind of trial when an oppressor is coming against us and causing us much pain. And those two roads that we need to travel on are praise and prayer. Praise and prayer. And as we go through this psalm, we're going to see David praising God in the first 12 verses, and we're going to see a few different ways he praises God. And in the second half of the psalm, verses 13 to 20, we're going to see David praying to God, and we're going to see a few different ways in which he prays to God. But first, we see this first road that we are to travel on, the road of praise. In verses 1 to 12, we see David offering God praise for God's past and future justice. David looks back at what God has done in the past, and he looks forward to what God will do in the future, and he praises him for it. Just to give us some background on this psalm, we're not told at the very beginning with a little superscription of the circumstances, but just paying attention to the details of this psalm, we get some clues. In verse 13 of this psalm, we find out that David wrote this out of an experience of affliction that was coming at the hands of wicked men. And these wicked men appear to be not just a handful of individuals, but a whole nation or multiple nations that are coming against him. Nations or peoples are referred to repeatedly throughout this psalm. So not only is David suffering, but all of Israel is suffering. Because when a nation comes against you, typically it's not just you who are suffering, it's the whole people. And this suggests that this affliction that David was experiencing took place while he was king. Because really only kings are ones that nations come against. Another clue to that fact is the reference to Zion down in verse 11 as being the special dwelling place of God. Because it wasn't until David was king that the Ark of the Covenant that symbolizes the presence of God was transported to Jerusalem. God thereby signifying that Jerusalem was the city that he chose for his name to dwell in. So David wrote this psalm while he was king. In verses 1 to 2, we find the first way in which David praises God in the midst of his affliction. And it's a purposeful praise. Look at verses 1 and 2. David says, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. As David faces yet another trial in his life, he takes time to praise his God. And I want you to notice in these first two verses how purposeful David is in this. Four times he says, I will. He says, I will praise the Lord, four times. Oftentimes during 
great trial, you're not going to feel like praising the Lord. It's then that you have to let your will lead your heart. You have to purpose to praise God because you're not going to feel like it. You have to make a conscious choice to pour yourself out to the Lord in praise. In verse 1, David purposefully chose to engage his whole heart in giving thanks to the Lord. He says, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. He committed to recount and declare the wondrous things that God had accomplished. And in verse 2, he decided to be glad and exalt in his God. He was determined to open his mouth and sing praise to the name of his Most High God. If you let your feelings lead you, you will never do what David is doing in these first two verses. But if you, with the Spirit's help, if you decide to offer up to God the sacrifice of praise, you will find that your feelings will eventually follow. Hebrews 13:15 says, Through Jesus, then, let us offer up continually a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Sacrifices aren't always easy, are they? They cost something. That's why it's called a sacrifice. And when you are going through trial, it can cost you to give praise to God. But that is what makes it all the sweeter to our Lord when we praise him. So, David offers up purposeful praise to God. In verses 3 to 6, we find David's praise take on a historical character to it. He looks back at what God has done and praises God for that. Verse 3, David says, When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne judging righteously. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins, and you have uprooted the cities. The very memory of them has perished. David here appears to look back on the wonders that God has done. That's what he's praising him for at the end of verse 1. I will tell of all your wonders. And then in verses 3 to 6, he rehearses what those wonders are, how God has delivered him from his enemies in the past. In verse 2, he had called God the Most High. And in the context of these next verses, verses 3 through 6, the Most High connotes the fact that God is the chief justice in the most supreme of all courts a justice whose judgments cannot be appealed or overruled. David has seen in verse 3 how when God causes his enemies to turn back, they stumble and perish. They don't live to fight another day. When God takes care of them, they're taken care of permanently. And the reason why they are taken care of permanently is because of verse 4. David says, God has maintained my just cause, and has sat on the throne judging righteously. God fought for David because God considered David's cause to be just. David was a what after God's own heart? He was a man after God's own heart. 
And because of that, David's causes were often the same as whose causes? God's causes. Because David so regularly desired what was pleasing to God. Therefore, when David had a battle to fight, so often God was right there with him, winning the battle for him, because the cause that David was fighting for was God's own cause. David wanted what God wanted. And because David's cause was just, on his behalf, God, verse 5, rebuked the nations. He destroyed the wicked. He blotted out their name forever and ever. In verse 6, God caused the lives of David's enemies to lie in ruins. The cities which they hoped would cause their names to endure were destroyed. God yanked them up by the roots, and he caused the memory of their names to perish. Because David was on God's side, he found God to be on his side in the battles that he fought. Now we read a psalm like this and we think, how does this relate to my life? I don't have nations coming after me. I'm not going out on the battlefield and waging war against nations that have a personal vendetta against me. That's true, but this, this psalm still has great application for us because as believers, we too face conflict, don't we? We will find at times people coming against us. And when that happens, we need to ask ourselves, is my cause just? Is my cause just? Am I desiring what God wants in this situation? Is this person coming against me because I've done what is right? If so, then I can be confident that because I'm on God's side, God will be on my side. And he will carry me through this conflict. He will maintain or establish my just cause. I can trust him to see that good prevails over evil. And it doesn't matter how powerful those coming against you may seem, because ultimately God will uproot them. And if they don't repent, he will cause their memory to perish. But you have to make sure that your cause is God's cause, not your own personal selfish cause. It has to be his cause if you're going to expect him to maintain that cause. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've seen this to some degree, haven't you? When you have desired what pleases the Lord and you've pursued what God wants and people come against you because of that, you see how God provides for your cause to rise to the top and prevail. And when new conflict comes into your life, you should look back on what God has done in the past to assure yourself that he will step up again in the presence, in the present for whatever conflict you're facing. So David is looking back and he's praising God with this historical aspect. In verses 7 through 10, David's praise takes on a more future-looking, a prospective aspect. We see David's prospective praise in verses 7 through 10. Verse 7, David says, But the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. 
And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. In verse 6, David had spoken about how his past enemies had been blotted out and their cities uprooted and their memory has perished. But in contrast to his enemies, which have perished, in verse 7, David says, The Lord, Yahweh, abides forever. He does not perish like David's enemies. He abides forever. His throne, verse 7, has been established for judgment, meaning that God's judgments will stand. They will not be overturned. Again, he's the most high. Nobody can appeal or you know, appeal to a higher court to overturn what God has decided. And because the Lord abides forever, David can trust that God will continue to do as he's done in the past. He will continue to judge David's enemies. In verse 8, David considers the judgments that God will make in the future. He says that he will judge the world in righteousness. God is going to execute judgment for the peoples of the world with equity or with fairness. That means he's not going to show partiality to anyone. God will judge the nations in the very way that he commanded his people, Israel, to judge those in their midst. Leviticus 19, verse 15, listen to what God said to his people, the guidelines he gave them on how to judge. He said, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. That's how God's going to judge the nations. He's not going to show partiality to anyone. And in this way, verse 9, the Lord will be a stronghold. He will be a place of safety to those who are oppressed by the enemy. God is not a judge that can be bribed. He's not a judge whose judgment will fail. He is someone that the oppressed can run to and be sure that they will be vindicated. Justice will be upheld in this God's court. And so they run to him. They find refuge in him. Verse 10, David speaks of how those who are afflicted and who know the name of the Lord put their trust in him. What does it mean to know the name of the Lord? And what is it about his name that makes him someone that the oppressed eagerly trust in, that he's the first one they go to? Well, I've said it many times, but in the Old Testament, in certain contexts, to know someone commonly meant to know them intimately, to be in a close relationship with someone. For example, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, we are told that Adam knew his wife Eve, and the result of that knowing was that she conceived and gave birth. Obviously, that is an intimate knowing. That is an experiential knowing shared by a husband and his wife. In Exodus chapter 33 and verse 17, it says this, The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. I have known you by name. And this is not merely God knowing the facts 
about Moses. No, this is a type of knowing that only exists between the closest of friends. Turn back with me, if you would, to Exodus 33, just to show you what kind of knowing this is. Exodus 33. I read verse 17 for you, but look back at verse 11 of that chapter. It says, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. That's the kind of knowing relationship that existed between God and Moses. Then turn over to Numbers chapter 12 with me. This chapter is one in which we find Moses' siblings having a bit of a rivalry with him, thinking he should not be the only one who can call the shots or speak for God. And God's not very happy with their position against Moses. This is how God responds to Aaron and Miriam. Numbers 12, verse 6. He said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? So this kind of knowing is a very intimate, relational knowing. Back in Psalm 9, verse 10, this is the kind of knowing that David is speaking of here. Those who know your name will put their trust in you. And again, getting to the question of what's so special about God's name. Well, we've seen back in Exodus chapter 34 that God's name involves all that God is and all that God does. So when David says that those who know God's name will put their trust in him, it makes perfect sense. They have experienced the goodness of God. They know him as they know a friend. And they've experienced God. And because of what they've experienced, they run to him first over everyone else. The afflicted who trust in God have entered into a relationship with God. They have lived out what Psalm 34 verse 8 says. They have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. How about you? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? If you have, you will trust him above all others. And if you find yourself not trusting God, it is because you have not yet seen, you have not yet tasted that he is good. And you need to ask God to have mercy on you and reveal himself to you in that way. You need to look to Jesus Christ, who is the goodness of God incarnate. And following him and trusting in him and experiencing him, you will find in him a stronghold that is safer than any other. He never leaves us nor forsakes us, so we will run to him when trouble comes. In verses 11 and 12, David shifts 
to congregational praise. He doesn't want to praise God alone. He turns to his people and he exhorts them to praise God right along with him. Again, if the enemy David is being afflicted by is a whole nation, David's not the only one being afflicted. All of his countrymen are being afflicted as well. Verse 11, he says, Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. This most high judge who has done such marvelous works of judgment in the past and who will do so again in the future, he dwells in Zion. That is, he dwells in Jerusalem, the city that David had the Ark of the Covenant transported to. David, er, God dwells among his people. This great delivering God lives among his people. That is why his people can sing praises instead of being afraid. Because when the nation, these enemy nations, come against them, they're coming against not only them, but the God who dwells in their midst. And if they dwell on that truth, fear will fade away and their tongues will be loosed to sing praises to God. As David had done, so he exhorts his people. In verse 11, he says, Declare among the peoples his deeds. Why should they so confidently declare who their God is? Verse 12, For he who requires blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. God doesn't forget his afflicted people. He remembers them. He avenges them. He will not forget their cry. Did God overlook the cries of his people in Egypt? No, he didn't. He came and he sent ten plagues that totally obliterated the superpower of the earth. And then he took his people through the Red Sea. And when the Egyptians followed, he drowned the entire Egyptian army. God delivered his people then. God continues to deliver his people and he will continue to do so for his people. And as believers in Jesus Christ, partaking of the new covenant, do you realize that God dwells among us in an even more profound way than he dwelt among the Israelites? We don't have some box in a tent signifying to us the presence of God. Now we have God himself dwelling inside of us through his Holy Spirit. We don't need to fear those who come against us. Therefore, we are free to praise when oppressors come. That's what we should do. We should praise God when people come against us unjustly. And we will get through it because in the praising, we are remembering and we are preaching to ourselves the truth. That brings us to the second portion of this psalm where David turns from praise to prayer. He begins making requests of God in verses 13 to 20. And he prays that God would grant him relief in this present predicament. And the first thing we notice about David's praying is that he prays God-centered prayers. God-centered prayers. Look at verse 13. David says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, See my affliction from those who hate me, you who lift me up from the gates of death. David asked God for grace. 
He knows he doesn't deserve the deliverance of God, but he asks for grace that God would give it, that God would see his affliction and deliver him from the gates of death. And notice the reason for which David requests this in verse 14. He says, That I may tell of all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. That's very significant because it tells us that in the midst of his affliction, David is not so consumed with himself that he forgets the interests of God. David knows that God desires his people to praise him, whether things are going well or things are going bad. God desires his people to rejoice in the salvation he gives to them. So David, a man after God's own heart, says, God, deliver me from the gates of death so that I may have opportunity to praise you and to rejoice in your salvation in the gates of Zion. Do you have that kind of heart? When you are going through trial and you ask God to deliver you, is one of the reasons you state to God, God, deliver me from this so that I can praise you about the deliverance you effect for me? May God give us that kind of heart that in the midst of danger, our chief concern would not be for our own comfort and safety, but for the glory and the honor of God. Now, it's not wrong to desire comfort and safety. Certainly, David desired that. But it becomes wrong, it becomes an idol when our desire for comfort and safety surpasses our desire for the glory of God and his honor. Let's examine ourselves and let's see if we are men and women and children after God's own heart like David was. Worship was David's priority. If you're anything like me, a lot of times comfort and safety become the priority, but it should not be that way. So that's David's God-centered prayer. When we come to verses 15 and 18, David's praying takes on a without-a-doubt character to it. In fact, he doesn't so much pray as he does declare what's true. And that's how we should pray in the midst of trial. We should be certain about who God is and pray in line with that. In verses 15 to 16, David seems to speak of the future judgment of nations as being so certain that it is, it is as if it has already happened. Look at verse 15. David says, The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made. In the net which they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. In the work of his own hands, the wicked is snared. Haggaiyan Selah. I don't know what Haggaiyan Selah means, so I'll just pass over that. But in these two verses, we see how God typically judges people. And we saw this somewhere before, didn't we? We saw this in Psalm 7. Psalm 7, verses 15 to 16. Do you remember there what happens to the wicked who come against people unjustly? Well, they dig a pit. And they fall into it themselves. They 
They think about what kind of mischief to practice against someone, and that mischief returns upon their own heads. Well, in in Psalm 9, we find out that God doesn't only judge individuals that way, he also judges nations that way. And it's one of the primary ways that God executes his judgments. He turns the designs of the wicked back upon themselves. And what is one of the most famous people who was judged by God in that way? And he guesses, can you read my mind? His name starts with an H. In the book of Esther, Haman, that's right. And what did Haman do? He had an enmity. He had a a ethnocentrist streak in him. He hated the Jews, and he hated one Jew above all, Mordecai, and he built a gallows to hang Mordecai upon. But who was the one who got hung on those gallows? Haman, the one who had built it to hang somebody else on. That's what God does. He turns the tables on the wicked. Look at verse 17 in this psalm. Look at how the wicked are described there. The wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. They're described as the nations who forget God. And Sheol, or the grave, is where they end up. That is to say, there is only death in their future. There is no hope beyond death for them. And there are no exceptions to this. David says, The wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. Every wicked nation, however, thinks they're the exception to that rule, right? No wicked nation thinks that they are going to be the ones who end up like this. Turn with me to Isaiah 14, because I I think we see there a great example of this. In Isaiah 14, God is comforting Israel He has warned them of how the Babylonians are coming and how God will use the Babylonians and the Assyrians to discipline his people. But he also gives hope. He tells them that the day will come when Israel will give a taunt to Babylon, the very people that God used to conquer them. And this is the taunt that Israel will give to the king of Babylon. Isaiah 14, verse 3, addressing Israel, And it will be in the day when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you have been enslaved, that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say, How the oppressor has ceased and how fury has ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, which used to strike the peoples in fury with unceasing strokes, which subdued the nations in anger with unrestrained persecution. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet because these guys are being dealt with. They break forth into shouts of joy. Even the cypress trees rejoice over you and the cedars of Lebanon saying, since you, the king of Babylon, were laid low, no tree cutter comes up against us. Now listen to this in verse 9. Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. They will all respond and say to you, 
Even you have been made weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you, and worms are your covering. And notice the sarcasm, the dripping sarcasm in verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to earth, you who have weakened the nations. Verse 13, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze on you. They will ponder over you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities? In other words, was this the guy we were afraid of? He's just like us. Who did not allow his prisoners to go home? Verse 18, all the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb, but you have been cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch, clothed with the slain who are pierced with a sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a trampled corpse. You will not be united with them in burial because you have ruined your country. You have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers not be mentioned forever. Prepare for his sons a place of slaughter because of the iniquity of their fathers. They must not arise and take possession of the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. There are no exceptions. Every wicked nation ends up in Sheol. Back in Psalm 9, why are there no exceptions to this rule? Verse 18, For the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. The reason there's no exceptions is because God hears the cries of every victim of every wicked nation who's ever lived. And God will judge those wicked nations. Do you realize that we live in a nation that is wicked and has forgotten God? Isaiah 14.20 said of the king of Babylon, you have ruined your country. You have slain your people. According to the Guttmacher Institute, in the year 2020, there were 930,160 abortions. Nearly one million unborn babies were slaughtered in the womb. And yes, I know Roe was overturned, and some 20 or more states are moving to ban most abortions, steps that we can thank God for, but the bloodshed continues, including in our own state. I want you to think about this. Do you know what was the last straw for God in his dealings with Judah? What provoked God to finally, after centuries of patience, what What provoked God to finally allow the nation of Judah to be conquered and sent into exile? Listen to 2 Kings 24, verses 3 to 4. It says, Surely at the command of the Lord, 
it, that is the conquering, the exile, came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood which he shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not forgive. This country has spilled more blood than Manasseh could have ever even dreamed of doing. Over 60 million unborn children have been murdered in the womb in this country since the court decision of Roe v. Wade. Though this nation has forgotten God, God will not forget those this nation has killed. And he will not forget us when we suffer oppression from those who come against us. The wicked, those who refuse to repent of their sins, they have no hope beyond the grave. But for the afflicted, though it can seem like there is no hope now when we are suffering, yet our future is bright because our God is a righteous judge. And we may suffer in this life and we may perish in this life, but because we trust in a risen Savior, we will live forever with him in the next life. But the wicked only have eternal death in the lake of fire to look forward to if they do not repent. But if they do repent, they will be forgiven and share that glorious future with us. This brings us to the last aspect of prayer that we see in David in verses 19 to 20, and it is a humbling prayer. It's a prayer for God to humble the wicked. He closes this second section of the psalm, and he closes the whole psalm with a final prayer. He says, Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know they are but men. Selah. How does a nation get to the point where it slaughters its own children, its own people? How does a nation get to the point where it unjustly attacks another nation, like Russia attacking the Ukraine, or like what David was experiencing in this psalm, a nation coming against him wrongly? A nation gets to that point when that nation thinks that it is God instead of the one true God. There is a humbling coming for such a nation, and they will be reminded that they are but men. Is that not what we saw with the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14? In verse 14, he said, I will make myself like the Most High. But in verse 16, as he's laying rotting in the grave, those who see him say, Is this the man that made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? God never lets man prevail. God is going to judge the nations. And I don't have time to go there, but write down Joel chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, where we are told that in the future God will enter into judgment with the nations. Joel 3, 1 to 2. And then write down Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46, where we see that that judge who will enter into judgment with the nations is Jesus Christ. And he will assemble all the nations before him and he will separate the sheep from the goats. 
And what characterizes the sheep is that they were kind to the oppressed. And what characterizes the goats is that they continued to oppress the oppressed and they ignored them. God will judge. He will judge. But the good news is that this judge became a man so that he could walk this earth and live a righteous life in our place. And then, having lived a perfect life, he went to the cross where he suffered the judgment that is being poured out on the wicked. He suffered it upon himself and died in the place of his people. And he rose from the dead so that anyone, no matter how wicked, no matter what they've done, if they would turn from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ, his sacrifice would be applied to them and they would be forgiven and they would be made new. We need to pray about that for this nation. In the meantime, those of us who have come to know the name of Christ, those of us who have run to him in repentance and faith, whenever any storm of oppression comes our way, let's praise God, let's pray to God, and we will find him faithful to carry us through it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all of these roadmaps that you have given us in the Psalms through which we can navigate our way through difficult times in our lives. And Lord, prepare our hearts if we're not facing oppression now. Prepare our hearts for that day that we may meet it with praise and prayer, that we may be the salt and light to those who come against us. And Lord, any who are suffering that now, help them, Lord, to take these roots of praise and prayer to run to you to get them through it, to be confident that you will cause good to prevail. We thank you for the hope that we have in our Lord Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.